When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hey, everybody. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Welcome to Beekeeping for Newbies. Thank you very, very much for taking the time to listen. I do appreciate you. And uh, like I said before, if it wasn't for you, I'd just be talking to myself. So thank you. As always, feel free to reach out, Jeff at beekeepingfornewbies.com. And uh, please hit us up on the Discord room as well. I'm looking right now. I think we have 95. Let me see. 7 plus 6, 3, carry 1. 93. <laughs> 93 people in the Discord room. So uh, we're pushing 100. There's going to be a special giveaway. I think it's a, I think it's a $20,000 prize or something like that. I'm not sure. It's a, It might only be a dollar. I don't know. But anyway, uh, there is not a $20,000 prize, so please don't hold me to that. But, uh, yeah, pushing 100. So on the uh, Beekeeping for Newbies homepage, there is a link to the Discord room. So feel free to jump in there and uh, come say hi and chat with the rest of us. And a special thank you to all of you who are already in the room and who are keeping it alive and well and answering lots of questions and sharing your thoughts and experiences because there's a whole lot of people out there smarter than me. So it's always great to get them in the room and chatting. Okay, so this episode is going to be episode 43, and it is titled A, a Typical Year for a Beekeeper. This is a request that came in the other day. Let me see. I cannot find who it was who sent the message, so I don't remember. Sorry, I apologize. I know it's in a note somewhere. Anyway, so we're going to talk about what a typical year looks like for, you know, a hobbyist beekeeper. And, you know, honestly, I never ran a big commercial operation, so I couldn't even give you a big commercial perspective if I wanted to. But but this should be a good overview for someone who's, a, you know, a hobbyist who's just managing, you know, a couple of hives, maybe, you know, a dozen or so or less. And maybe, you know, you could be, whether you're going into your first year and next year, or you just did your first year, or you're in your second or third year, this is kind of all going to look roughly the same because it gets into a pattern that seems to repeat. So what I'm going to do is I will start from November because November is kind of in a way when the new season starts. I'll run through kind of what takes place typically for me between November and February 
you know, keeping in mind that, that my time frame is going to be different just based on my weather and where I am. If you're down in, you know, like South Florida, Miami, uh, Naples, you know, somewhere down in that area, your season is going to be very, very different than mine, right? Or if you're up in, you know, Montana, North Dakota, the Northeast, Canada somewhere, your season is vastly different than than my timeline and my time frame here. But this is kind of what I do here, Mid-Atlantic, Southeast. One of the first things that I recommend doing is getting your orders in early for the next year. Whether you're ordering packages or nukes, a lot of places will tend to, they used to sell out really early. I mean, I've had times before where we got to Christmas time and it was, you know, sorry, we're out. We got nothing left in the spring. Now I'm seeing places emailing still in March, April, May. Hey, we've got plenty of packages, you know, let us know. The only thing that I can think of is I think that the price of these packages just is just getting a little bit crazy. I don't know. Maybe people are just passing along the inflation costs of things. I, I don't know. It's just everything is really expensive. But they're available a lot more now in the spring. You could decide in February, March, hey, I think I'm going to keep bees this year. And you can get all your hardware, uh, your hardware and your bees in time. Whereas going back a few years ago, if you didn't have it locked in early, it wasn't going to happen. But I like to go ahead and start planning for that in that November time frame if you want to order a couple of package bees. And the other thing, too, is you're kind of never going to go wrong. Once you get in the beekeeping community and you're kind of in that circle, you're going to make bee friends. You're going to have people in the bee club. You could order 10 packages, have them delivered, and maybe you decide, geez, you know, I only want three of these. You can just talk to somebody at the bee club and say, hey, look, they were $125 a piece, $25 each for shipping. It was $150. As long as you just pay me back, I don't care. You know, I'll drop them off. You can come pick them up, whatever you want to do. Somebody's going to buy them. So it never hurts to order a couple of extras. Once all of my bees are on order and I've got a plan in place, um, I just, for some reason, just popped into my head like the year of covid where I had all these nukes on order. I was going to go down to Georgia and pick up the nukes, and I was going to do some package bees from a different apiary, and then it turned out to be like me driving down in the RV because we had to have a place to stay, and we didn't want to go into a hotel, and we were all COVID paranoid, and it was kind of crazy. But anyway, once you've determined you know what you're going to do, how much you want, how you're going to have them delivered or picked up or whatever it's going to be, the next thing I recommend is to go through all of your hardware. So you're going to have kind of this combination of hardware, especially after a couple of years where you have the things that you got during the season that are still new, haven't really been used, or some of your standby equipment that you have ready just in case you need to expand. Then you have the things that are actively on the hive right now on the, the various colonies that you have. But this is a good time to go through and say, okay, well, I've got two hives. I'm probably going to split this year. So let me see if I need to order more hardware. This is taking your existing hardware, looking for anything that's going to be possibly broken. The paint is chipping off. We, you know, one one area I've, I've noticed in the past is my stands, like my hive stands. Occasionally they'll kind of wobble side to side if I don't support them very well or just the time of them being out in the weather. They'll get a bit wobbly. So that's a good opportunity to go ahead and replace the stands or even some of the legs of those stands, depending on what you use. There are places where I've had something that has bumped into like the corner and there's a chip 
shows up with a small hole, so maybe you can put some wood filler in and then paint over it. Just just regular kind of maintenance stuff on all of those, you know, serviceable type hardware items. Which also along that line, you know, it's it's the same thing with all your protective gear, right? So make sure that your protective gear, the things I I really I know I I, I beat this dead horse all the time, but check that veil or the hood, whatever you have that protects your face. Like I just, I don't really care if I get stung on the hands or the wrist or whatever. But for those of you who are in the discord room and you saw that picture the other day of my face, like if I get stung on my face, my eyes will close up. You know, that picture is proof. Definitely make sure that whatever is protecting your face is good to go. The second area that it kind of messes me up when I get stung I have this really bad habit. For the longest time, I would just go out in shorts and I would throw a veil on and I would just start doing my thing. And, you know, if you have good bees that you work with regularly and you're communicating with them, you know, and you're having dialogue with them about, you know, how nice you are and how much you love them, you're not getting stung really hardly at all. And I kind of got spoiled. So I would show up, you know, in like shorts and a veil just kind of doing my thing. And uh, there are a couple of times where I've gotten stung like down around my ankles. And that is just not good for me. Like I, I won't be able to wear shoes. I have to like kind of elevate my legs. But if I have to put shoes or boots or something on after I've been stung, it's a disaster. So I take a lot of time and make sure that I'm, I'm really looking at the equipment, checking zippers, make sure they're functioning properly, checking for holes in the veils. The other thing I recommend too is if you have these jackets and veils and things, hang them up because I am notorious for just, you know, I'm, I'm hot. I've had the gear on for a while. I peel it off and I just throw it against whatever's nearby in my garage. And then I come back and, and mess with it later. And it's easy for something else to get thrown on top, the screens of the veil to get pinched. And next thing you know, you're creating an opening for your friends to come in and, and do an up close and personal hello to you. You know, you never want to start the next season off with a couple of, you know, stings to the face. But with that gear, too, making sure you have everything else, making sure that your smoker is functional and that, you know, all the old junk that you left in it from the previous year, that you've scraped all that out there. Get a couple of extra hive tools. If you're going to do any open feeding, get your open feeders ready. Make your bucket feeders. You know, just everything that you need, go ahead and start prepping all of that gear. The next thing I would say is if you have uh, if you have a few warm days, kind of later in the winter. Now, for me, I always, every month, there are bees flying. Doesn't matter, December, January, February. There's always at least a couple of days where it hits that 47, 48, 50 degree mark, and the bees come out, they're flying, they're doing some cleansing flights. They're getting you know out, and they're coming back with pollen. They will find pollen in January. It's got to be some kind of tree pollen or whatever, but they always seem to find something. But when it gets to the, the later part of the winter, on a warm day, this is kind of where I'll make that judgment call, depending on where we are, like that February, late February time frame. But you can actually, you know, pop the top and take a look in there and see how far up into the hive that the bees have traveled you know, because typically the higher up they are, they're eating the, the resources and the honey and things that are up near the top. Uh, a lot of people, as they're closing for the season, they'll throw a pollen patty right at the very top. So as the bees are working their way up in the colony towards the top, they get to the top and they hit that pollen patty and they've got something to kind of jumpstart them going into the spring. 
uh, not opposed to that. But this is an opportunity for you to take a peek, look in there, see how big the cluster is, see how many frames it's covering, maybe throw a pollen patty on it. I don't recommend sugar syrup at that time of year yet. But, you know, a pollen patty getting thrown in there is, is uh, certainly something that people will do. Or if you're a big fan of granulated sugar, you can throw a bunch of granulated sugar up there. I'm only doing that for a couple of people in the Discord room that are big fans of the sugar thing. I will never put granulated sugar in my hives. Not going to happen. You're never going to convince me. Don't try. Stop. Leave me alone. Okay. Um, but in, on those warmer days, definitely a good opportunity to just take a peek, see what kind of activity you have, see what they have available still. And, you know, you may, if you actually have some honey frames available and you see that they're almost out, you could even swap a honey frame in there just to kind of help them out if you needed to. Really, I, I kind of try to avoid that as as much as I can with with too much interaction with the hive. And like we've talked about before, too, if you need to break that seal and it's still, you know you have colder weather coming, you know, the this, this seal between the two hive bodies, go ahead and just throw a piece of tape, some whatever, like some uh, of the foil duct tape or regular tape, just something that reseals things back together because it's not going to form a great seal in the cold when that propolis is, is more solid. Hey, everyone, thank you for listening. I hope that you're enjoying the show and are finding the information to be useful and valuable. In order to help keep the lights on, we do need to take a quick commercial break. Thank you so very much for hanging in there, and I appreciate you. We will be right back. All right, everyone, welcome back, and thank you for staying with us today. As always, feel free to reach out if you have any questions or comments. I always enjoy hearing about your experiences, answering questions, and learning more about the challenges you're facing in different parts of the world. So please keep them coming. It's Jeff at beekeepingfornewbies.com. Now let's get back to the show on the Beekeeping for Newbies radio network. Okay, that's not a real thing, but I'm trying to make it sound more official, so just play along, all right? Thanks a lot. Okay, so now we're going to move on to kind of what I would consider to be one of the more tricky times of year. As you're coming out of the winter, they are really running low on resources. And you know, you're starting to see activity. They're moving around. And this is where it get well, it, it's tricky because they recognize that warmer weather is coming. And they will sometimes take the, kind of the last of the available resources that they have. And they will start using that to fuel the, the laying of eggs in preparation for the spring. And as long as they still have a decent cluster size, they can stay over that brood, keep them warm. But I've just, I mentioned this a lot, but I'm, I'll bring it up again. I've had times where you get those two or three warm weeks in February, and then they'll they'll lay a lot of eggs and, and have young brood. And then it gets super, super cold, and that cluster size has been diminished a little bit. And I've actually had them use so much of that last bit of food in feeding this new young brood that they've actually killed themselves. And I, th- I think I've posted pictures in the Discord, possibly. If not, I'll post them again. But I have full frames that you pull out that are completely covered in frozen brood. They just they, they got too cold. They died. The cluster, you know, ran out of, uh, the bees ran out of resources, and they died. So that, that man, that late February 1st, you know, a couple weeks of March, it's it's a challenging time, so you really got to be paying attention. And this, the thing that really stinks about it is just not much you can do. I mean, you can throw a pollen patty in there, and you can hope for the best, but they're just, nature's going to run its course. Now, the good news is if they make it through, that's that's one of the traits we talk about all the time, right? Those five traits of, uh, 
you know, of a great queen, the ability to overwinter. I mean, that's number one. If that queen and, and that colony can't overwinter, well, you don't have the right genetics. Right after that time frame, right, the weather starts to get warm and it's consistently warm, right? You're getting nighttime temps maybe still in the 40s, but daytimes are in the mid-50s to mid-60s or 70s. The activity is really ramping up. The next thing on your mind now is, okay, it's swarm time, right? It's swarm season. And it'll creep up on you. It will creep up on you really, really quickly. Because just as you're thinking like, okay, the weather's getting nice. I guess I better keep an eye out for swarms. And they're gone. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I mean, it happens so fast because they recognize it a little bit earlier than we do. And that queen just starts cranking out those eggs and laying eggs like crazy because they're ramping up for that big productive spring. And if you if you miss it, if you're not paying attention, it's easy to miss. So that's going to be, like, again, in this area, it's that late March, early April. The further south you go, you know, the earlier in the year, you need to start paying attention for those things. I think that the, the kind of general rule I would say is once those temperatures are consistently during the day, 55, you know, 50, 55 and above, as long as those bees are moving, you know, they're bringing back resources. They're getting ready to uh, make more brood and, and lay some eggs. And those swarm cells are going to be close behind. So you definitely want to pay attention. Now, the other activities we have going on there in the spring is, you know, we've got splitting and supering and queen rearing. There's, there's all kinds of those other activities, but at a minimum, uh, you're going to be making decisions. You say, hey, look, I really want to try to maximize my honey production. I'm going to give them tons of space. I'm going to add honey supers. You know, I know we covered this in a recent episode, but like I always say, super early, super often, when it's warmer and there's a flow on, you have less issues to contend with. So you won't have to deal with, you know, they're not robbing. Robbing is not an issue in March, April, May. Because there are so many food resources out there that are free that you don't have to fight for. You don't need to go rob somebody out. So you can put a couple of extra supers. You just throw two supers on at one time instead of just doing one, right? If That colony will fill those things up so fast on a flow. But you can be making decisions around splitting. You can decide, you know, hey, I, I want to go from three colonies to 13 colonies. So I'm going to make some queen cells, right? Queen rearing is a great thing to do to expand your apiary. It's not that difficult. There are several methods that are really, really easy to do it, whether you decide you want to graft, which is a little bit more technical, or there are some ways that you can kind of cut some frames in a way that make it really easy for them to draw up queen cells. There's a lot of really cool, neat things you can do. Uh, in fact, that's probably a whole episode in itself about some splitting techniques that are more specific and not, you know, I, I've done a lot of this as very generic high level discussions, but maybe that's worth kind of digging into later on. 
but these are things that are going on during the flow, right? When you have a flow, there's just everything. Like I, I think I literally typed that today. Like things that are going on in, in the colony are so much more forgiving during a flow. Once that flow wraps up, which we're probably in our area, you know, we're like three, three, four weeks away from pretty much not having a whole lot of anything. And then all of a sudden people are going to start saying, Hey, I think my queen's gone. Well, it's not that the queen's gone. She's just not laying, right? If there's no food coming in, you don't take your resources to create more bees, which are more mouths to feed if you don't have more food coming in. The colony does a very, very effective job at managing resources, right? They know, okay, we have X amount of pollen nectar coming in, so this is how many mouths we need to plan to feed, and they regulate it really, really well. So just because you don't see new eggs, because this is very common, you open up the, the hive in mid to late June, and you're like, oh, my God, I think my queen's gone. She's dead. And you're looking through, and you can't find any eggs. This happened to me for years. Like, for years, like, oh, my God, I lost my queen again. <laughs> like, what happened? But, no, she's still there. She's just not laying eggs because, again, it's more mouths to feed. But we're going to start getting those messages about that. And then the second thing is, hey, I did, you know, three splits off of my primary colony this year, and I checked them out at the end of June, and they're dead. I think they absconded or, or whatever. It's like, well, no, you looked in the hive, and... There were no resources. They ate all the food and then they died. That's kind of, you know, you see a little pile of bees on the inside or whatever. And a lot of people default to things like, oh, well, it must be colony collapse disorder because they're just dead in the hot. No, they probably starved to death. Starving and varroa are two very common things. Right? People, people almost take the varroa thing like a, I don't know, like a disease or an illness. Like, oh, it's not going to happen to my bees. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's going to happen. In fact, I think it was a couple years ago. I had posted a picture of a cute little honeybee drinking out of a puddle. Right, really nice little picture of the honeybee. And I looked back at it later on. I think she's got like two mites on her back. I'm like, oh my god, what? What am I doing here? I failed her. But yeah, we're we're you're about to start seeing how less forgiving colonies are are going to be in the absence of a flow. But hey, we'll work through it together. We're all on the same team. We'll figure it out. Now, for me, in June, like I said, the dearth is kicking in. I usually harvest honey. If I'm going to going to do so, it's usually late June, like usually somewhere in that June 15, 18, 20, somewhere in there. I take them off. I harvest. I put the, the supers back on so that they can clean them up. And a lot of times I just leave them on. You know, if I don't need the, the honey super in the frames for anything in particular, I'll just leave them there and I'll kind of deal with it later in the season if I need to take them off or, you know, if we need to consolidate and and make the uh, the hive a little bit smaller. But usually I like to have my honey in, in a jar by 4th of July. So now in July and August, this is a good time where we are for treating for varroa because we do have a break in that brood cycle like I was just talking about. And varroa reproduce in the brood. And uh, it's just a good time since there isn't brood available and, and giving them a place to hide, then that just makes it even better of an opportunity for you to go ahead and treat. I also keep a close eye on them to see where they are on their food resources and determine if any supplemental feeding is going to be necessary. You know, for a larger apiary, open feeding is generally going to be easier. But if you just have a couple of colonies, I'll use a frame feeder, a top feeder, whatever I have, and, uh, you know, just feed them with that individually. 
that way I'm not drawing in, you know, if you, if you put an open feeder out, you're feeding everything. You're feeding your neighbor's bees. You're feeding things that, that are potentially detrimental. You may be like, you know, yellow jackets and other things. You're feeding literally everything that comes around. And of course, raccoons, raccoons, man, they'll, they'll knock the feeders over and drink all the sugar out and laugh at me for it. The one thing that I really recommend that you do is if you are feeding inside the hive, reduce the entrance reducer down to the smallest entrance. At a time where there is a dearth and bees and yellow jackets and things, they're out and they're looking for something to eat. They'll fly by and they will smell that sugar syrup inside the colony and they will go in, they will start robbing and they will pick a fight. If the hive is only having to defend or if the colony is only defending that three-quarter inch smaller opening, it makes it a lot easier on them. And and like I said, uh, with the entrance reducer, you don't have to use... In fact, I've got a whole episode where I'm going to be talking about this. Yeah, I'll, I'll leave that for the, the entrance reducer discussion because we've got a whole thing to talk about with that. But take it down to the smallest entrance, and that'll make it easier for them to defend. By the time you get to mid-August, the fall flow is usually starting to kick in. So, you know, I'm kind of keeping an eye on the flow. I want to see periodically, you know, how much new pollen and nectar is being brought in, how many brood frames we have, just trying to get a good idea that that queen is kind of re-engaged and she's doing her thing. I don't actually weigh my colonies I have before. I don't really do it much anymore. But when I did, the best way that I found was to just take like a two by four. It's better with two people. If you can do it with two people, it's really easy. But take a two by four, and you would have to have them on a stand for this to work. It won't work if you're not on the stand. But you can rock them forward, having one person hold, slide the scale with the two by four right underneath of it. And then the two by four, of course, would allow for each of the back feet to rest on the two by four and then lift the front up. And then that way you'll have the weight down on the scale. And you can get kind of a, a ballpark idea. I mean, you could always physically lift them up and set them down on a scale if you wanted to. I'm not doing that, you know, but if you have somebody around who is capable and able to do so, then by all means have them lift it up. Or, you know, you could even use something if you had a small excavator or a backhoe or whatever. You could do something that you wrapped around the hive and had a hanging scale, and then you could just hook it up and lift it up with the backhoe or with the front end loader, just lift up and use the scale to take a measurement. I'm sure that would work too. You know, be creative. But I found a, a long time ago, you know, somewhere in, when I did weigh, it was like right around that 45 to 50 pound mark was pretty safe. That was kind of a, a good rough estimate. Now what I do is I just target, you know, I usually keep two deeps and, and a medium on there. As long as they have a full medium, they're pretty well good to go. And usually down in one or two deeps, they'll still have a couple of frames in there of honey as well. But in general, just having a full medium with a couple of extra deeps that are that are inside the brood chamber, they're usually pretty good with that. Now, I, I remember, I think it was six, seven years ago, we had a pretty harsh winter. And I think all of my hives, I, all of them made it. I may have lost one, but they all made it through there, And but they were all sitting on about 50 pounds of honey. But if you have any that are underweight, again, feed them. Try to get the weight boosted up in that, you know, August, September time frame. And you still want them to have time for the, the nectar to cure and to be able to be capped as honey. And as it gets colder, I mean, that becomes more difficult and more of a challenge. Now, when we roll into September, that's pretty much all I'm doing in September, right, is just supplemental feeding, keeping an eye on things, and 
you know, uh, j- just hoping that they get everything filled up to the level that it needs to be. October is probably, you know, that, that final might wash of the year. If I even do it, I'm, I'm not going to lie to you and pretend like I'm beekeeper of the year or anything. I, you know, I, I don't always do it. I mean, you're going to treat with oxalic acid or you're going to treat with whatever you do. You're probably going to do it anyway. So sometimes I don't even do the mite wash. I know that's probably not the right answer, you know, do as I recommend, not as I do. But go ahead and get that treatment, whatever you're doing, whether it's Apovar or oxalic acid, formic acid, whatever you're doing. I, I like to get that done in that October time frame. It's kind of my last real project for the, the hive going into the colonies going into the, the off season. You know, the one thing I will say, I know that a lot of you, you know, read the directions on packaging and things like that, and you follow those directions, which is probably a good idea. If you look at the directions on Apovar where it says to use them, you know, for 30 days and then discard, I'm sure that's probably the right thing to do. And that's probably the best thing to do. I used to, when, when I used them, I would put them on like in October timeframe and take them off in March. I never had anything obviously detrimental happen to the colonies. I've never had a situation where it, they just died and then we just blamed it on the ape of our strips. I don't think that was the case. I, I'm telling you this because if you put them in in say October and then it's really cold in November, do you do you want to open everything up and expose them just to remove the strips? I mean, they're going to be clustered together and moving around in the cluster as they consume resources and things. I just don't think it's going to be that detrimental to them. But as always, follow the directions. So you get through October, you've done your treatments, you're, you're, you've done your mite washes, and, and you check your counts, you've validated or verified that, that everything is the approximate weights and capacities that they need to be based on your area. And these are things, too, you can ask other beekeepers, by the way. Like, you don't have to try and reinvent the wheel. Just talk to people in your bee club or people in, your, in the Discord room or wherever you might be that you're communicating with other beekeepers. Say, hey, listen, this is my first year or my second year or whatever it is. I'm really not sure how much honey I need to have in the colonies to overwinter. What do you guys recommend? And just see what everybody says. The unfortunate thing is a lot of people have advice and there's all beekeeping is such a goofy world because there's so many different ways you can do things. You know, someone can say, Oh, I overwinter nukes and I only do it with four frames of honey. And you're like, okay, well, they didn't, they didn't tell you that they overwintered their four frames of honey in Miami, not in Montana. Right. Location is, is, you know, really, really important. So making sure you're dealing with people who are local. And I, I really recommend using multiple sources, talk to different people, maybe average things out. Like, don't listen to me. You know, take what I tell you as, as rough, generic, you know, general guidance. Ask other people. So that brings us kind of full circle back to that November time frame. And again, you're starting all over again. You're cleaning up gear. You're deciding... You know, how many hives you want to have for the next year, reevaluating what you did right, what you did wrong. The one thing that we used to do is we would take our notes at the end of the year and, and try to do some sort of consolidation and put it into the computer and keep track of things because we were really, really bad at that. The other problem, too, is we'd have propolis on our gloves or our fingers and they would stick to everything and the pages would get ripped and they would be ripped out of the notebook or it would be rained on. But anyway, getting notes consolidated was a nice end-of-season thing to do to kind of review things and, and try to see if you can determine any kind of patterns or whatever. There's so, some really cool software out there, out there now that does a really good job of this. Well, folks, I am going to wrap it up here. I feel like that's pretty much about all we can 
cover on a real high level what does a typical year look like. If I didn't answer the question or answer the mail here, feel free to drop me an email, let me know, and you know we can always revisit it in the Discord or on another episode. And uh, check us out at beekeepingfornewbies.com on the homepage there and get the link to the Discord room. And, of course, we're on YouTube at Beekeeping for Newbies. And we are also still syncing to Rumble. i got to double-check where we are on that. Next episode coming up is, or I should say the next two episodes coming up, I've got one coming up on the different species and breeds of honeybees that are out there. And then the other one after that is going to be, like, managing entrances and front entrances, mouse guards, top entrances, all those kind of things. We're going to cover all that in a separate episode. Be kind to one another. Take care of yourself. Stay out of trouble. Don't do anything I would do. And I will look forward to talking to you folks very, very soon. Take care. Bye-bye. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.